This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book that might be of interest is Extreme Cities, The Peril and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change by Ashley Dawson. In Extreme Cities, Ashley Dawson argues that cities are ground zero for climate change, contributing the lion's share of carbon to the atmosphere, while also lying on the front lines of rising sea levels. Today, the majority of the world's megacities are located in coastal zones, yet few of them are adequately prepared for the floods that will increasingly menace their shores. Instead, most continue to develop luxury waterfront condos for the elite and industrial facilities for corporations. These not only intensify carbon emissions, but also place coastal residents at greater risk when water levels rise. In extreme cities, Dawson's offers an alarming portrait of the future of our cities, describing the efforts of Staten Island, New York, and Shishmaref, Alaska residents to relocate, Holland's models for defending against the seas, and the development of New York City before and after Hurricane Sandy. Our best hope lies not with fortified seawalls, he argues. Rather, it lies with the urban movements already fighting to remake our cities in a more just and equitable way. Extreme cities, the peril and promise of urban life in the age of climate change by Ashley Dawson. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Since Bernie Sanders' mind-expanding success in the 2016 Democratic primary, much of the left, from progressive Democrats to socialists, have had their sights set on something we had long, at least implicitly, assumed was impossible. State power and governing. The question now is how to take power, and the left is consumed by debates, mostly but not always productive, about how and whether to engage with the Democratic Party, or, in a more limited fashion, with the Democratic Party's ballot line. My guest today is Joe Dinkin, the National Campaigns and Communications Director at the Working Families Party. We'll talk about just what to do with the Democratic Party and recent successes and failures running left candidates for office since the 2016 election. Before we get to the show, a reminder that we're trying to reach 700 supporters on patreon.com by the year's end. If you haven't yet, please go to patreon.com slash the dig. That's patreon.com slash the dig and toss us a little cash. Under socialism, all rides will be free. But for now, we need our listeners to pay us money via the website patreon.com. Thanks. On to the show. Joe Dinkin, welcome to The Dig. 
Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Before we get into depth about all the work you've been up to recently and where you're heading, for listeners who don't know, what is the Working Families Party? So the Working Families Party is a national grassroots progressive political organization, uh, and we see it as our mission to recruit, train, and elect the next generation of progressive leaders to office, uh, and then work with progressive elected officials to fight for economic and racial and social justice and pass public policies that make a meaningful difference in the lives of of working people. Um, I'll give an example of what we do from uh, New York City, where we were founded in 1998. Um, We're founded in 98 by a group of progressive unions and community organizations um, and progressive elected officials who saw the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton as beginning to move too far to the right under the um, you know, third way DLC era with, between NAFTA and welfare reform uh, and a Democratic Party that was chasing Wall Street money um, because of, uh, you know, the, the view that they could be competitive in politics with Wall Street money and neglect, neglect progressives, neglect the left, neglect people of color. So I'll give you an example from New York City. Um, you know, just looking back 10 years uh, 10 years ago in New York City, our mayor was a billionaire and our city council was dominated by a handful of uh, old Democratic Party machines um, who were heavily dominated by the real estate industry uh, for funding. Um, today, we have a much more progressive mayor whose base is in um, the labor movement and in communities of color and a city council where the biggest faction is the progressive caucus Um which was, uh, you know, a group of council members who, back in, you know, 2007 and 2008, the Working Families Party began a new program of recruiting a new kind of candidate to office. Often, people who had come out of community organizing groups or housing rights groups or unions, and giving them the tools and skills to run for office, challenging those democratic machines, challenging candidates backed by the real estate industry. Uh, in 2009, we elected the first class of them, um, and those group of that group of members went on to form the Progressive Caucus. In 2013, won a bunch more seats, um, and those those uh, members together formed the Progressive Caucus on the New York City Council, where the dynamic now in New York City is actually instead of being like it is in most of America, a fight between moderate Democrats and right-wing Republicans. It's actually a fight between Democrats and progressives. Um, And that's the fight that we want to see in America. And so our vision of success really looks like building the political power for working people and for communities of color and for progressives to be able to affect that dynamic in cities and states all over the country. We want to see, we want to help Democrats win back majorities in state legislatures, but we also want to make sure those majorities are dominated by progressive forces, not by not by you know conservatives and moderates and business-backed candidates. And um, you've been involved for how long? I started the Working Families Party in 2004, so a little more than 13 years now. And how did you get involved initially? So I sort of took a summer job in 2004. Um, I was a film student at the time, and the only summer jobs I could find were um, organizing at the Working Families Party or unpaid internships in documentaries. And the unpaid internships weren't actually going to keep keep uh, pay my rent to, to be able to live in New York City that summer. So I took the organizing job. <laughs> but if I'm being honest, uh, I was pretty cynical about, about politics. I, I was a little bit of a ideologue, but I didn't really think the 
real world practice of politics was something that I could see a path to making much of a difference um, you know in the post September 11th America in uh, you know which I had increasingly felt conservative and pro-military um, and I didn't really feel like I had a good outlet for uh, meaningful concrete political expression but I found myself in this job at the Working Families Party um, working on a campaign to raise the minimum wage back in 2004 um, the minimum wage was five dollars and fifteen cents an hour in and New York my State. job was in New York State that's right um, actually that's you know the fight for 15 has been so meaningful for me because this was the minimum wage was sort of the issue that got me engaged in politics for the first time. Um, my job at the time was leading crews of canvassers out every day to door knock in uh, Long Island and Westchester County suburbs, mostly Republican state Senate districts, um, and generating handwritten letters from constituents um, to their Republican state senators. Um, but we had a Republican governor, a Republican-controlled state Senate, and you know, cynical is kind of cool at 20. Uh, I didn't really think there was much of a chance of accomplishing anything. I'll cut a long campaign short um, and say that, you know, we ultimately won the campaign to raise the minimum wage. Um, we succeeded not only in forcing the Republican state Senate to vote to raise the minimum wage, but actually got them to vote again to override the veto of the Republican governor, Pataki at the time, to, to raise the minimum wage. And, and I started to realize, wow, you know, power is a real thing. Um, and I was with a crew of my canvassers in a Dunkin' Donuts in downtown Brooklyn when I got the call that we had succeeded, that the override vote was going to happen in the state Senate. I told all my canvassers um, about this exciting win that we were going to raise the minimum wage in New York, uh, and the Dunkin' Donuts workers um, heard me, and one of them actually started crying um, and told us about how a higher minimum wage would change her life, um, and that sort of changed my life too. So you know, I've been doing that ever since. That was like your road to Damascus moment. <laughs> That's right. Zooming back a more than a decade into the future, um, to the recent past, I want to talk about some of the races that WFP has been involved in. One that my listeners will be familiar with is Larry Krasner, who is now the Democratic nominee for district attorney in Philadelphia. And he won that race in May, and it was just one of the most incredible insurgent candidacies for local office that I've ever even heard about in the U.S., especially because we're talking about the job of top prosecutors, which pretty much anywhere traditionally and in Philadelphia in particular have often been occupied by people who are utterly comfortable being complicit in the perpetuation of mass incarceration and impunity for police abuses. So tell me a little bit about the Krasner race and WFP's involvement in it. So I'll take a step back first and say that I think Larry is part of a trend that we're seeing um, across America this year. Larry's one of the best examples of the trend, but the trend is of um, progressive candidates, often people tied to social movements and progressive organizing groups, um, running for office who might have never really considered running before and running on bold and transformative platforms yeah, that this, might this be Larry's out of the secret, uh, secret long run long range plan. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Larry never knew that he was a candidate in the making. Um, but, you know, Larry's claim to fame before running for office, his biggest spot in the public eye was he was the lawyer for the Black Lives Matter movement. He was the guy who used to get Black Lives Matter and act up and occupy Wall Street protesters out of jail. Um, and I think you're totally right when you talk about the 
what a sea change it was to see somebody like Larry Wynn in Philadelphia, you know, for the longest time in America through the entire age of the war on drugs, through my whole childhood uh, and you know, youth, the people who were running for district attorney and winning were the people running by pledging to be the toughest on crime, by pledging to be the meanest to people who'd broken the law, um, this sort of chest-beating war on drugs mentality um, where the best way to be a DA was to lock up as many bad guys as possible. And I really credit the Black Lives Matter movement for dramatically changing public perception um, mm-hmm. of of the um, broken uh, system of uh, criminal justice, of racially biased policing, of the um, you know existence of mass incarceration in America to a degree that I think a lot of people had never really understood before that movement, and into that very it's a, different. It's at frame. least it's at least sort of um, it, it it's a awoke a lot awoken a lot of people from the kind of center to the left to it and it's um also kind of it, it, i don't know it's been kind of like an interesting polarizing experience which has dangers and a lot of possibilities you know um trump won off of this right. anti-blm backlash in many ways i think um but yeah in from more more mainstream everyday liberals who might have been copacetic with mass incarceration previously it, that's now become a something that's rightfully toxic and and in a city like philly there's really this opportunity there and you know it was less than 10 years ago that lynn abraham was the district attorney in philly somebody who <laughs> had the nickname queen of death for the frequency with which she sought the death penalty but 10 years you know today into this very different uh, environment, I think, transformed largely by the Black Lives Matter movement. Larry Krasner walks, and suddenly the context of the race, um, with Larry in the front of the pack, is instead of who can be the toughest and the meanest, it's who can't. You know, there's a much more widespread understanding about a criminal justice system and mass incarceration system that is overly punitive, way too expensive, and fundamentally not working, not doing the job that it's supposed to do, keeping people and communities safe, and into that. Uh, atmosphere, Larry Krasner walks, and the question of the race is who's best suited to actually make those transformations, um, to actually uh, you know, tackle the broken criminal justice system and make structural changes to it. And Larry, the guy who's been saying that for 30 years, is suddenly a, a man of the moment instead of a, a man out of step with, uh, with the majority, which you know, he might have felt like if he had tried to run 20 or 30 years ago. And it was the um, situation of all so, his primary opponents you know, these creatures of the establishment tripping over themselves to right. try to catch up to him, but they couldn't because he actually had an authentic track record speaking on these issues and acting on these issues. Right. And, and you know, it was incredible. The formula for his win was actually raising turnout and in particular spiking turnout among young people, um, among the people who've been kind of most radicalized by the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, people, voters under 30 turnout almost tripled compared to the you know 2013 election, um, which was just incredible to see. So, you know, the Working Families Party in Pennsylvania was one of Larry's very first endorsements, um, worked closely with him to develop his, you know, outreach and political strategy and field strategy and, and policy. Um, we think of ourselves as the people who want to provide those sets of um, skills and trainings and resources to the candidates who really uh, espouse the values that we want to see represented in public life. Um, we also engaged in um, uh, what's called an independent expenditure um, through the, you know, our national organization ran an independent expenditure that in the final three weeks of the uh, election knocked on about 70,000 doors to um, 
to identify Krasner supporters and, and draw them out to the polls. Um, but, you know, I think Larry had the um, uh, foresight to get into the race, um, had the, you know, observation how much sort of public sentiment and history had changed and ran a really great campaign. And, and we saw it as our role to step up and help people like that um, do everything we can to make sure they win. And actually, it's, it's one of a handful of very exciting results um, around the country over the last year or two that really confirmed the sea change in, in how people are seeing the role of DAs and the uh, you know depressing state of our, our criminal justice system. WFP has also been involved in a number of local races that have seen black progressives elected in cities in the Deep South. One is Randall Woodfin, who recently won the race for mayor in Birmingham. And yeah, by a bigger margin than anybody. You know, I think people projected that to be a very close race. He ultimately won by a, a pretty healthy margin. Um, yeah. And, will, you, will you say you know, a little about him and who he is? And Yeah. You know, Randall was a, a school board member who's, uh, you know, candidate who had on the school board been sort of the leading fighter against privatization of public education, which is a fight that is roiling cities across America right now um, with uh, a very well-funded you know, movement uh, backed heavily by hedge funds seeking to um, make education work just like markets where there are winners and losers um, and, uh, you know, innovation and profit to be made. And we fundamentally believe something different, which is that you can't have losers in the education system. You actually have to have standards that are high enough for everybody to get the kind of quality education that allows them to be full citizens, um, full participants in public life, um, uh, to have you know decent, decent chances in life. And so Randall Woodfin challenged the incumbent mayor um, and ran in support of a $15 minimum wage, ran in support of, of or in strong opposition to um, privatizing public education on his record on that. And, you know, what, what WFP did was, you know, we actually had volunteers phone banking and texting voters in the district um, as, you know, one of the most interesting races in America. We actually had even some volunteers far beyond Alabama participating in it. Um, to help a you know bold candidate taking on a powerful incumbent like that win, um, and we were you know really pleased to see to see his victory, and we're excited to see what comes. Uh, and I also think you know I'll note that there's a um, contested Senate race coming up in Alabama too, where you know it, under ordinary circumstances <laughs> it might be unthinkable to imagine beating a Republican in the uh, in, in an Alabama Senate race in such a deep red state. But I think the enthusiasm. Um, that we saw from this very recent election in Birmingham might mean that there's an opportunity for um, uh, progressives and African-American communities um, to turn out at great enough numbers to to actually put that race in serious play. Um, One poll recently showed that race is tied. And do you think that's because of Alabama liberals and leftists being energized about Roy Moore's just totally toxic, noxious disgustingness or is it that combined with more establishment Republicans being disinclined to head to the polls for him and thus creating more of an opening for the left? You know, I would say that the baseline of Alabama is so deeply 
slanted Republican that it takes a lot of factors to uh, to, to make a race suddenly be pulling even. But I think um, enthusiasm among progressives, I think divisions among Republicans, I think um, the reaction to Trump, I think the extremism of the Republican nominee uh, are all are all pretty good reasons that that make this race look like one that is that there's an outside chance of winning. Uh, well, that would be remarkable. He's easily one of the worst human beings in this country. Um, in uh, nearby in Jackson, Mississippi, um, Chakwe Antar Lumumba won. Sure. He um, um, yeah. Also, somebody. Go ahead. I'm he, sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, he's is at the lead of a, a really remarkable political movement there, that was led by his father previously, who tragically died in office. If you could say a little bit about the situation in Jackson for listeners who aren't aware of it. So Shokwe Antar Lumumba's father um, was uh, was elected mayor actually four years ago, served less than a year before tragically dying. Um, and uh, the son, Shokwe Antar Lumumba, um, actually ran for mayor um, as his father after his father died and uh, and lost Um to the uh, you know to, to lost to the sort of establishment pick, um, I think the pattern that people expected in this municipal cycle was that um, Lumumba might come in first among the pack in the you know the way the election worked in Jackson was um, uh, it's a top two race, so every candidate in the field would run in the first round, and then the top two would go ahead into a runoff, um, and I think the prevailing you know the conventional wisdom in Jackson was. That in a crowded field, um, Lumumba might be able to cobble together 30 or even 40 percent and come in first in the first round. Um, but he was, you know, too radical, uh, and um, the establishment and the Democratic Party and you know business money uh, would all unite around whoever the other candidate making it into the runoff was, making it impossible for him to win. Well, Lumumba surprised everybody by beating 50 percent in that first round and averting a runoff altogether. Um, and it was uh, it was pretty remarkable. Um, and I think it's also part of the um, surge we're seeing in the appetite of voters to be open to much bolder and much more transformative solutions. And it shows that when um, political leaders are actually putting forward ideas that make people believe that they can really um, make a change, make a difference in their lives, that people have a much more uh, 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 a much bigger reason to go out to vote. So the same way that Larry Krasner drove turnout in Philadelphia by talking about the system of mass incarceration that was affecting so many young people, and in particular, so many young people of color, um, Lumumba talked about the problems in, you know, that are uh, actually common among majority-minority cities that have seen unbelievable disinvestment. And he talked about solutions that are ordinarily not seen as even on the table of mainstream debate in 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 America broadly around um, public ownership and around cooperatives and around some very interesting and cutting edge uh, economic ideas to uh, you know to, to develop collective ownership and wealth and infrastructure in a, in a city that's seen so much capital flight. Yeah, I should do an entire show on what they're up to down there because it, it comes. I don't know much about it, but it comes out of a, a long. Black radical tradition in the area is that right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, his, you know, it's a, a, move, a movement that you know was at least uh, twenty or thirty years in the making. Um, but I think the leadership of Shokwe Antar Lumumba, the new mayor of his sister Rukia Lumumba, uh, and of a whole you know cohort of 
um, young and old leaders who were pursuing this very you know, transformative and radical politics and, and actually one, I think it's one of the most interesting experiments to, uh, to, to, to be watching and trying to replicate in other parts of the country. Um, and, you know, just for, for our part, I'll say that we were um, endorsing early and what we were able to provide was, um, you know, expertise on uh, field organizing that comes from our many years of campaign experience that we were able to um, uh, provide, um, you know, door knocking capacity, basically capacity and, and strategy that, uh, you know, I, w I wouldn't in any way try to take credit away from the incredible work of folks in, in Jackson, uh, but we saw it as our duty to be part of the movement and to support somebody as, as you know, potentially transformative as, as Shokwe and do everything we could to help him win. We just discussed some examples of how left candidates can win in the deep south but those examples were places in the deep south that were already democratic strongholds with large black populations. I want to shift gears and ask you about how left candidates can win in Trump country more generally. And sure, and I'll I'll give yeah, go ahead. Well, one one um interesting case of this that I actually hadn't followed closely at the time was Christine Pellegrino who in May won a special election for a New York State Assembly seat on Long Island from in Long Island, um, and she won that really decisively in a district that tr Trump had just a few months prior won decisively. So, can you tell me a little That's bit right. about what happened there? Christine Pellegrino is a teacher, an activist in her teachers' union. She's been a leader in the opt out movement. Um, and really got the political bug for the first time. Do, do, you, do I need to explain the opt-out movement? Yeah, just just briefly. It's a movement of teachers and parents against the culture of high-stakes standardized tests dominating education curriculums and education spending. Um, and so it was a movement of students that's taken hold in a lot of parts of the country, but is particularly robust uh, in some parts of Long Island um, around getting students to say that they don't want to participate in those tests. Um, uh, and it's been, it's been quite powerful. And that was, you know, a lot of Christine Pellegrino's organizing experience. Um, in 2016, she became deeply involved in the Bernie Sanders campaign um, and uh, and was eventually a, a delegate to uh, the DNC for, for Bernie um, and really got the political bug and began to think of herself as somebody who would want to be engaged in you know public office, engaged in making change in that level, maybe in helping to run somebody else's campaign. Um, she went to a candidate's training that the Working Families Party held on Long Island for progressives thinking about running for office back in, um, I think, March or April of 2017, not expecting you know, a, a race to sort of present itself in her community so quickly. But um, there's uh, a race opened up, a special election was called for the state assembly seat in which she lived. Um, the local Democratic establishment in Suffolk County um, had been pushing for a different candidate um, had sort of all but given up on the race um, 
because they didn't think that a district that Trump had won by 20 points was even worth really contesting. They just put a decided on a, a, a party loyalist, basically, to be their standard bearer for that race. Um, ultimately, the Working Families Party and some of the networks of Bernie volunteers and the teachers union um, prevailed on the local Democrats, succeeded in having them nominate Christine Pellegrino um, for the race because we believed that only somebody who was capable of generating enthusiasm and inspiring voters with a message for how we could, you know, actually tackle some of the changes that were the some of the challenges that we're facing, um, could could compete and could drive the kind of turnout it would be necessary to win that race. So we were right. Uh, Christine ran an unbelievable campaign that brought in um, huge numbers of volunteers from the um, you know, from teachers from across the state, working families, party volunteers, um, a huge mass of, you know, alums from the Bernie campaign um, sort of flooded into the district and, uh, you know, talked to a huge number of voters, turned people out, dragged people to the polls and won this race that nobody saw uh, coming. Um, it was a swing from a district that Trump had won by 20 points to uh, electing Christine Pellegrino by, I think, 19. So it was nearly a 40 point swing um, in her direction in, in just uh, just about six or seven months. That's remarkable. And, and, and I'll, yeah. add, I'll add one, well, that one other quick thing, which is that same theory um, that it's progressive candidates who um, can inspire voters to pay enough attention, to engage enough, to want to turn out, to care about the race, to win. That has, you know, gives us a lot of faith for candidacies like Randy Bryce, um, the Iron Stash, who you may have also followed a little bit. He's the union iron worker and Working Families Party member running for Congress in Wisconsin against Paul Ryan. Um, you know, early polling has shown it's going to be a very competitive race in, in a race that um, Democrats didn't even seriously contest last time. That would be just the most incredible thing that I've ever experienced if that happens. Um. <laughs> and, and, you know, in the, in the last quarter, I hate to be, I hate to sound like one of the uh, um, horrible mainstream political reporters who cares more about fundraising numbers than, than policy ideas. But in the last quarter, Randy Bryce raised more than a million dollars, um, almost entirely from small dollar grassroots donors um, in Wisconsin and across the country, um, beating Paul Ryan by about $600,000 on the quarter. These are the Pellegrino's race plays to the left Bernie-crat argument that the way to win elections against Republicans is to run unabashedly left candidates making clear arguments about why transformative policies need to be enacted that will concretely improve regular people's lives. There, But there were also two special congressional elections this year in that played in different ways to this ongoing debate between the Bernie-Krat left and the corporate-aligned Clintonite establishment in the party. And one was in Montana and the other was in Georgia, and they were both to fill vacancies for Trump cabinet members. And in Montana, Bernie-Krat Bernie Rob Quist ran and lost, and in Georgia, centrist John Ossoff ran and lost, and people on the Bernie Krat left were hoping that Quist would win in right-leaning Montana and demonstrate that the left's argument is correct, 
and centrists were hoping that Asif would win in Georgia and prove that you have to run these milk toast centrists in right-wing districts to beat Republicans. And neither race really shook out for either side. What's your take on those That's two right. races? You know, those were two races that were um, in deep red Trump country. You know, part of uh, uh, appointing cabinet secretaries is that you get to choose who they are and where they come from. And in all cases, they were from strongly Republican-leaning districts. And I actually think in all cases, um, the closeness of the race, you know, spells trouble for Trump and Ryan and McConnell and the Republicans going into 2018. Um, ultimately, neither strategy proved to be quite enough to um, uh, to uh, beat the Republicans in deep red districts. Um, you know, my belief is in races like either of those that progressives have something like a moral obligation to do everything we can to um, uh, to cripple the ability of the Trump administration to continue to do so much harm to so many people. Um, uh, and I think those two races um, don't really tell us that much, except that um, except that I think that fight <laughs> that you mentioned between um, you know the sort of progressives and the more centrist wing of the Democratic Party uh, will continue to kind of be at each other's you know at each other's throats for time to come without conclusive proof. You know our view continues to be that progressives do better in these races um, that uh, progressives have the ability to convey to voters that they really believe what they're saying, have the ability to inspire um, turnout and engagement, and also have the benefit of when they win, we actually have a progressive in office. So, you know, we're more likely to focus time on on those progressives. But ultimately, I think we all need to do, you know, do anything we can to uh, defeat the unified Republican government we have in Washington right now, because, you know, it threatens so much. In short, Bernie would have won. I haven't said that in weeks on this show, so I just had to get that. Out. Um, you should have one of those little meters that counts down the days. <laughs> we were just talking about this debate between the Bernie-crat Democratic Party left and the corporate-aligned Clintonite Democratic Party establishment. There's also a debate of sorts between the Democratic Party Bernie-crat left on the one hand and the wide spectrum of people on the socialist left on the other over how and whether to engage the Democratic Party. And WFP typically flexes its muscle to back left candidates in Democratic primaries. And we do have a two-party system, unfortunately, so that makes sense to me on some level, but also maintains independence and sometimes runs people outside the Democratic Party line. What's your overall take on this debate and on what the right approach is? You know, I think that the Democratic Party is um, the playing field more than it is, a, you know, it's a piece of infrastructure that can be mobilized by lots of different forces more than it is um, any specific ideal ideology tied to it. I think we do live in a, a deeply broken, um, imperfect political system that doesn't well represent the variety of political views we have in America. Um, but 
you know, given given single member districts and the high cost of you know running for office and um, you know first past the post election rules, there are a lot of things we could do to make that better. But given the system we have, uh, you know, parties in in America are not really like parties in the rest of the world in that they don't really have fixed or consistent ideologies. Um, but what they do have is ballot access, and in most cases, um, you know, we try to be uh, strategic, and we, when we want to elect people who we think will carry our values in public office, um, most of the time in in most of the country, it's a lot easier to do that within the context of a democratic primary than as a you know sort of minor party candidate who might face some of those structural problems that I named before. Um, like you know, the first past the post system, which ultimately um, points heavily in the direction of of a of a two party system. When you have first past the post, there's heavy incentives for people to you know sort themselves into two big categories. Um, that said, um, when there are times that there isn't a candidate running in the Democratic field um, who suits our values. There certainly have been times where we've run outside of that uh, and and beat the Democrats um, head on running as a working families party candidacy. Um, I think the places where we've been able to do that um, are mostly places where we've built up um, the most reliable voting base and activist base over time by engaging in, in elections strategically, by engaging in elections that people see uh, a meaningful path to change rather than you know, inviting people to participate in politics as symbolism. We think politics really affects people's lives, and we don't tend to engage in it as, as symbolism only. Um, so, you know, just this year, um, in in the city of Hartford, uh, we ran a Working Families Party candidate named Josh Hall against a Democratic nominee. In this case, you know, we probably would have competed in a in a Democratic primary under normal circumstances, but. Um, there wasn't a primary because there was a, you know, the election structure in this case was uh, a special election, which allowed the um, Democratic Committee of Hartford, basically the uh, Democratic Town Committee, um, to pick the candidate of their choice. They picked a party loyalist, and in a strongly Democratic district like this one, you know, it's a Democratic stronghold. Um, they didn't think there was much of a race on their hands, and they weren't very worried about it. Um, they picked a party loyalist, and we realized we couldn't get that guy to basically tell us his positions on anything, including you know, whether he supported a $15 minimum wage, whether he supported the you – know, where he stood on the very uh, contentious fights going on in the state capitol over um, privatization of public education, over the growth of, of charters. Um, we couldn't get him to tell us what he believed, and so we ran an independent working families party candidate um, and, and ultimately succeeded in that race, electing um, Josh Hall, who was a um, you know teacher and a union activist running on an unabashed progressive message of fair funding for all public schools, investing in public education, $15 minimum wage. Um, and and you know even with the structural barriers facing outsider candidates, um, he was able to win. And then the other thing that I'll add is a lot of these places where we've, we've succeeded in running a minor party only candidate and winning, it's in geographies where uh, the Democratic Party is so dominant that the issue of you know spoilers doesn't loom quite as large in people's mind because there was no earthly way in the north end of Hartford that a Republican candidate might accidentally win if 
uh, a Democrat and a progressive WFP candidate divided the the the, the vote on the on the left or on the center and left or however you want to think about it. There was no Republican candidate in the race, and so that structure, in our view, has often made it easier to uh, elect. Um, independent working families party candidates. Um, and so often it's about becoming um, not the third party, but in places that are so single party dominated that there is effectively no Republican party. It's allowed us to become the second party and, and com- compete. How do you think that WFP's approach compares to that of DSA's, which is obviously very nascent. So it's hard to say what DSA's approach is because it's still being de- debated and developed. Do you see it as in contention with DSA's approach are more complementary. The approach I see being developed in DSA is is like WFP. It's an instrumentalist relationship to the Democratic Party, but maybe a little more instrumental in the sense of seeing the Democratic Party ballot line more crudely just as a ballot line and hostilely seizing it to run open socialists. How do you see the the two approaches? Um, you know, that's a good question. I'm really eager to see the new energy that's in DSA, and I'm curious, you know, watching pretty closely to see how their um, political practice um, develops. I think we broadly agree, you know, I, I think I agree with the idea of the Democratic Party ballot line as a sort of piece of infrastructure uh, and a, uh, uh, that, that you can seize in, you know, sort of more or less hostile terms. Um, uh, and I guess I would just say I'm I'm eager to see how the DSA thinking um, develops. I think we are, you know, I mentioned up at the towards the top of the show that we, um, you know, want to see. We believe that uh, a, a plausible outcome to change is, you know, Democrats in the majority in legislatures and progressives in the majority in. Um, in those democratic caucuses, we think that's a plausible path to being able to actually move progressive legislation. To arrive at that strategy can occasionally mean um, backing less than ideal Democrats if it means the control of the body is in is in play. You know, we think that the difference between um, uh, a Democratic-controlled state Senate versus a Republican-controlled state Senate is a big enough deal that uh, a, a mediocre Democrat might earn our support over a terrible Republican if it, if the control of the you know the body as a whole is in play, and if we think we can make that uh, upgrade, even if we don't you know ourselves uh, subscribe to every you know every belief by uh, a Democrat running in a swing district, I, I'm not sure that that's an approach that you know DSA would take. Um, uh, and I think that's uh, you know that's, that's it's good that there's you know a multiplicity of organizations doing doing different things. But um, my view would be if you if you look strategically at at, at power, um, there are sometimes reasons to 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 back candidates other than you know other than the candidates themselves. That very well sets up my next question, which is the decision that WFP took that I think sparked the most criticism of the sort of charging that the that WFP was didn't have enough critical distance from the Democratic Party was its decision to endorse Andrew Cuomo's reelection campaign in New York over his progressive challenger Zephyr Teachout and I know that that is something that you've probably spent dozens of hours of your life talking about since but can you Lay out what happened there and what lessons were were learned afterwards. 
Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, and I should note, I come into this conversation as the the guy who initially reached out to Zephyr Teachout about getting in the getting in the <laughs> Families Party candidate. Um, so, uh, you know, the the background here for your listeners outside of New York who um, were living under a rock in 2014 and didn't hear about this um, or were doing other things with their lives was a powerful and kind of conservative Democratic governor who had been holding up um, some, you know, quote unquote social issues as, as uh, uh, you know, his sort of uh, his, his, you know, flag. Um, he was, you know, embraced um, uh, same-sex marriage um, pretty early on, um, while at the same time having a fairly uh, right-wing attitude on fiscal issues, and in particular on things like um, taxing the rich. Um, and so the Working Families Party was in this position where staying out of the governor's race wasn't an option because the ballot line for the New York WFP um, depended on uh, depended on 50,000 votes in the governor's race. So what we decided to do was seek out an alternative candidate uh, and force Cuomo to um, either to to make some policy concessions to us um, or else be willing to run against him. Um, staying out of the race altogether wasn't an option. Uh, so what we did was um, recruited a candidate into the race, Zephyr Teachout, um, the a Fordham law professor um, and you know progressive activist who is now you know, in the public eye, uh, suing the Trump administration over the emoluments clause. Yeah, it turns um, out it, still but, a very good. For, <laughs> that's her. You know, key, that's her, very, that happens to be her core academic expertise. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, and is, you know, a really great progressive leader um, stepped up to sort of be the alternative candidate. Now, that precipitated a pretty interesting series of events, which was that the Working Families Party actually had uh, enough power that it forced Cuomo to come to the table and at least verbally make a series of policy commitments around raising the minimum wage to $15, around decriminalizing marijuana, around the state DREAM Act, um, a number of progressive policies. And on top of that, he committed to uh, a political program to make that happen, which was that he was going to um, help uh, use his political muscle and vast treasury uh, to elect a Democratic majority to the state Senate, which, except for you know about two years after 2008, has been in Republican control since essentially time immemorial. Uh, do you want me to do a digression? Yeah, on, if you could I, do a on digression IDC? on the weird setup of the, the New York Senate, I don't think pe- people outside of New York are aware, and it's just one of the most bizarre things. It is pretty bizarre. So the the Republicans in the New York State Senate retain control over the Senate to this day, even though a majority of members of the Senate are elected as Democrats because of a group of breakaway senators who um, call themselves the IDC or the Independent Democratic Caucus who caucus with the Republicans in the Senate. And that's been sort of an ongoing problem for the last couple of cycles, though this year it's finally awoken, uh, I think, a uh, a sufficient level of outrage. And Cuomo has been seen as sort of preferring this arrangement. Right. That's right. And and so he's long been thought to prefer that setup because it's allowed him full control over what comes to comes to his desk 
because he is at the heart of any deal, whereas um, Democratic majorities in both houses of the legislature could potentially pass you know, a tax increase on millionaires, um, and he would then be in the position of having to either sign or veto it. Um, instead, with a split government, he's able to kind of architect what comes to his, what comes to his desk and what doesn't and keep anything that he wants away from his desk. So, 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 so that being said, um, you know, Cuomo sent a video to the Working Families Party convention detailing this set of policy convention, con, con, uh, this set of policy concessions, and detailing uh, his plan to help take over the, you know, win Democratic control of the state Senate. So the Working Families Party in New York is our most well-developed chapter. Um, the state committee is governed. The the decision was in the hands of the. WFP's state committee at the convention, which was a body of about 200 grassroots activist leaders um, who represent, you know, a lot of them were rank and file union members, activists in the fight for 15, members of community organizations, individual progressive activists who had been organizing their local working families party chapters for, um, you know, for, for a decade. So, and not, so that group not of a people smoke, not a smoke filled boardroom. <laughs> right. And so that group of 200 people is suddenly put in front of them. You know, the choice of do we uh, give ourselves a path to pass a $15 minimum wage with the Democratic State Senate, um, even though it means trusting Andrew Cuomo, or, or do we run against him with a principled candidate who we believe in, um, who, uh, who probably won't win, probably won't have the resources to win, and then won't have the Democratic Senate or the governor bound by the, the promises that he made seeking the endorsement. So it was actually very contentious. Um, you know, activists in the Working Families Party argued about it for days at this convention, uh, and ultimately the side favoring supporting Cuomo in exchange for those policy concessions um, won narrowly. Um, on the one hand, I'll say, you know, Cuomo's promise to help take back the state Senate turned out to be a lie. Not he actually so didn't do very much <laughs> to, to take back the state Senate. What he did instead was he created a fake party called the Women's Equality Party uh, in an effort <laughs> to siphon votes away from the Working Families Party, one oh letter off, God. Uh, and pumped millions of dollars into that instead. So uh, Cuomo, after wow. you know being forced to sort of make these massive concessions on policy that he didn't really believe in, um, went on the outright attack. Having secured the Working Families Party ballot line, which is then, you know, under New York State election law, couldn't be rescinded. He had gotten what he wanted and went on the attack. Um, and, you know, the only other thing that I'll say about that is um, some of those policy concessions that Cuomo promised and then that he lied about taking back the state Senate, some of those policy concessions we actually got anyway. And I think because of the power exhibited by the Working Families Party and Zephyr Teachout, and by a rising sentiment uh, on the left, you know, we have a $15 minimum wage in most of New York today, with a, you know, compromise that that you know we didn't support, but that means that parts of upstate New York will only get to 12.50. We have um, a, a ban on hydrofracking. We have a sort of landmark free college program that you know some some criticisms of the implementation and the specifics of the plan notwithstanding is, is a pretty big step. So it's an interesting place to be in where um, uh, the party was widely seen as kind of making a fool's bargain with somebody who wouldn't keep their end of the deal, but the policy concessions that were at the heart of it 
you know, that are ultimately changing lives for people, ultimately have lifted wages for millions of New Yorkers. Um, some of those actually came into effect, but you know, we remain in this state of uh, um, it's very complicated uh, with with Governor Cuomo, <laughs> uh, even so. And you know, there's uh, he's been forced to the to to move to the left in some major ways because of the you know changed climate that that um, you know initial setup helped kind of precipitate. I mean, just even politics aside, it's hard to imagine a more unappealingly vicious and Machiavellian character. But yeah, he's just like remarkable <laughs> how that man operates. Um, so a- as an organization, though, how is WFP thought through? I mean, it, obviously, there's 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 staff, there's members, there's organizations that are affiliated. Um, this really complicated and fraught experience. Yeah, I mean, I would say among the state committee of the New York Working Families Party, you know, what to do in 2014 was a very close decision and whether or not whether or not, you know, that group made the right decision is is a uh, a debate that those that the members of that state committee are, you know, in many cases still arguing about and still um, you know, figuring out what how how they would do it differently. Um I do think that, you know, uh in in 2016 we had a uh, I'm sorry, in 2015, we had a national membership vote um, in the Democratic presidential primary, and 87% of our members favored favored Bernie Sanders in that race. And, you know, I think uh, um, that was a, a pretty clear show of where the bulk of the membership of the Working Families Party was. But, you know, it was also a different context. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to say what, uh, you know, what might happen the next time. Sticking to New York politics for a moment. Uh, obviously, uh, de Blasio is to Cuomo's left on most issues pretty decisively, but but a lot of people on the left in New York City are still have been pretty deflated at best about de Blasio. I think particularly when it comes to issues around reforming NYPD practices, and then also I spoke to this to Liza Featherstone about this a few months back. He's just really bad at politics in a lot of ways. Um, what What's your assessment of de Blasio's track record thus far? And I know F- WFP is like strongly behind him. So what would you say to my many listeners in New York City who are not huge fans of his a few years in? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right about a couple of things in, in what you said. Um, one is that he hasn't always been so good at touting accomplishments. You know, I think a lot of other political leaders, um, the universal pre-K accomplishment would be something that you would almost never hear the end of. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, you, it's like a major program that is a, a, a general, you know, a genuinely new, uh, you know, I say entitlement in the best sense of the word, a genuinely new benefit for millions of working families that they didn't have before. Saves people a tremendous amount of money. It's you know beneficial to early childhood education. He doesn't get a lot of credit for that. Um, I think the role of the you know there's a couple of other pretty good wins that are you know meaningful and substantive that we're very proud of. I think the you know general mindset of the Working Families Party is that we um, want to make material gains for people where we can, and we want to keep pushing. Um, so on on issues where you know, where we have a disagreement with the mayor. Uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody at the WFP is, is shy about continuing to push him. I want to talk uh, lastly sort of about WFP's structure and trajectory 
first the structure question. If you could tell me a little bit about how individual members of WFP and organizational members or affiliates, how how they both operate in terms of the governance of the organization, especially mm-hmm. a lot of grassroots liberals are moving pretty hard to the left. While we do have a lot of left-led labor unions, we also have a number who, despite the last few decades of the labor movement's utter decimation, still somehow think that establishment corporate-aligned Democrats are going to save them. So the WFP is a home for progressive um, organizations, progressive unions, and also progressive individuals. Um, We have statewide you know, statewide governing bodies in about 14 states now, um, which generally comprise a mix of representatives of institutions with individuals. Um, We have new local branches, which are sort of unstaffed, small budget, you know, member-led local groups at the city or county level, um, where small groups of WFP activists can... um, you know, become the local working families party of a, of a city or county um, around the country. Um, and we have a national leadership body that is, you know, the Working Families Party National Committee that um, has representatives of major institutions that support the Working Families Party, of um, representatives from each of those states with, um, you know, chartered statewide committees, um, from each of the local branches, and then also we are currently adding um, a number of, um, you know, individual slots. Um, and so, but our our aim is to give uh, individuals, you know, in their own communities, lots of ability, lots of tools, and and capacity for leadership to build the Working Families Party and own the Working Families Party in their own community. And then, lastly, I wanted to ask about fusion voting and a lot of. Listeners probably aren't aware of what it is, but when WFP was founded in what year was that? 2003? 1998, initially. 1998. Its its big idea was all about fusion voting, and that's not – that's no longer the case. Can you explain a little bit about – Sure. That's right. So so yeah, fusion voting in some states is known as cross-endorsement. It is – essentially just an election law that means that a minor party um, can, uh, and a major party can endorse the same candidate. So um, the ultimate impact of that is you might go to vote in New York City. um, And when you go to vote, you'll see, you know, we were just talking about Mayor de Blasio. You'll see Mayor de Blasio appear on the Democratic line and again on the Working Families Party ballot line. And so we tell people when they vote on the Working Families Party ballot line, that's the way to send a message with your vote to say where you want that candidate to be on the issues that matter to you from, you know, from from affordable housing to, um, you know, to to uh, 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 policing to, you know, economic development. Right. So so we ask voters in states like New York and Connecticut and Oregon to always look for the Working Families Party ballot line as the progressive stamp of approval right on your ballot. 
So that was the main kind of growth strategy. You know, that was the main you know electoral strategy of the Working Families Party for a big piece of our history. Um, and as we begin began to expand, we really we looked at um, states where we thought um, that either had a rule like that or a similar one, or we thought we had a path to passing uh, a law like that one. So in Oregon, we started organizing in. 2006 in Oregon with a plan to change the law and pass fusion voting, which we saw at that time, you know, necessary to to build the Working Families Party. I think it was really the success of the Tea Party on the right that showed us the, you know, the limitation of our thinking, which was that the Tea Party was this force that wasn't on the ballot at all, that wasn't using the fusion voting system, but still behaved like and saw itself as a political movement that was taking on the both Democrats who they saw as too, uh, you know, who they saw as an anathema and Republicans who they saw as too liberal for their tastes. And uh, we looked at our own record and realized, especially in places like New York City, the you know city council races that I mentioned to you, uh, a lot of our biggest victories had actually been in Democratic primaries um, that weren't really dependent on the reality of having a ballot line in the general election or not. So you know, in New York City, which is an overwhelmingly Democratic city, when Mayor de Blasio is reelected, the votes on the Working Families Party line, you know, might be five or six or eight percent of the vote, but it's not going to make a huge determinative difference on whether or not he becomes a mayor in a city as strongly Democratic as New York. So uh, we realized that we didn't have to be so limited in our thinking to growing only where we had this, um, you know, sort of quirky uh, election law. It's you know the fusion system is a great tool we think um, and it you know existed all across the country uh, a century ago. Um, it was often used for uh, allowing sort of urban industrial immigrant parties with rural populist farmer parties to work together on a common slate of candidates and ultimately you know the two party establishment and and the big banks. Uh, managed to ban fusion in most states because they thought it's too powerful a tool to allow different constituencies like, you know, white workers and immigrant, you know, native-born workers and immigrant workers to, uh, to 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 work together or freed slaves in the Reconstruction South um, uh, and you know rural white populists, right? It was um, so it was a really powerful election law for that was heavily used by the left until it was banned in most states. So that was the initial thinking, but we've since, you know, changed um our strategies a lot and, and realized that it's not a sort of critical prerequis- prerequisite for for the WFP to grow and it's really been in the last 2 years or so that we've started rapidly growing new WFP state chapters and local branches, you know, really all across the country. Last actually last question is I was just having a conversation with a friend about this last night, which is why should we not be incredibly depressed by how thin the national level left bench is? <laughs> uh, I think the reason we shouldn't be depressed is because uh, for two reasons. One, because we have no choice but to continue to fight for what we believe in. Um, but two, we shouldn't be depressed because there is an undeniable new wave of activist energy of people who want to participate. So we may not have uh, as many you know, leading light senators. We may not have as many Bernies and Elizabeth Warrens uh, as we wish we did, but we have an incredible number of people on the ground who are newly activated and more activated than ever um, who see a path to leadership in politics 
uh, and and who have capacity for leadership. And, and that's what gives me a lot of hope. All right. Joe Dinkin, thanks so much. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Joe Dinkin is the National Campaigns and Communications Director at the Working Families Party. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once flawlessly conveyed via emoji, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. This week, we're posting three. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. I also want to especially thank Patrick Roshley this week. I was just thinking about how critical it is, his help getting us into this studio at Brown University's library where we broadcast. So thank you. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's an iTunes, leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in front of new listeners, which advances the cause of socialism in our lifetimes, however minutely. And last but not least, please find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Mm-hmm.